Are we going to have the climate wars of 2050 or 2060? Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today is Tuesday, May 24th. I'm Eric Planey. I am Lucas Finko. And we are the Memorial Day weekend Pirates of Clean Tech. Are <laughs> are Lucas, how are you today? I'm pretty good. I'm coming to you from sunny uh, Lake George, New York. Uh, took a short uh, trip up to the lake before it gets crazy. Memorial Day weekend, it is dead quiet up here. There's nobody here. The lake is freezing cold. Um, yeah, but it's great. So having a good time. Well, the lake is supposed to be freezing cold this time of year, right? So finally something not impacted by climate change. Yeah, it's already starting to warm up, which is crazy. That's yeah. just crazy. Well, yeah, it's a beautiful day in the Hudson Valley today. Uh, after my PT session rehabbing my knee, I went for a nice little drive to get some air. Uh, I got to give a shout out to my my physical trainer, Haymont, who is just doing a great job. He works me to death. It's it's torture, but it's good torture for all the right reasons. And uh, I always feel so good after the session, knowing that I'm, I'm making strides and hopefully be walking uh, within a couple weeks. So shout out to Haymont. Um, so, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot in the news going on. And, you know, I sent in my articles to review a couple of days ago. You reciprocated with your articles. And since then, there's just been so many other things happening uh, that I feel like we could just go off on a tangent. So before we get into your articles, I thought maybe I just wanted to bring up one issue from our last episode where I've had active discussions, people reaching out to me. And that's really about the solar industry right now in a state of upheaval because of the fact that Commerce Department is going through this investigation uh, regarding you know, a, a Chinese manufacturers using Southeast Asian countries to label their products and to get around import tariffs that were imposed, I think, during the Trump administration, if I recall correctly. But more concerning is the fact that some of these, uh, some of these manufacturers are possibly using forced Muslim minority labor in Western China. And I've noticed a lot of the chatter online I've noticed a lot of conversations I've had with people. There seems to be two camps. And one camp is we need to just get these projects in America going. Let's come to a resolution. Let's find a way to get things going ASAP. And there's a lot of people also taking a step back and simply saying, uh, we got to do things ethically. The put thing, to put solar onto the grid, to put wind onto the grid, and to take out fossil fuels, of course, is a noble thing. And it's the right thing to do. But we need to do it with a supply chain that we can have confidence in. And that's being discussed right now. And I'm really happy to hear that the majority of my friends and colleagues I talked to are siding with the latter. Uh, back in February, the Department of Energy came up with this great paper that I recommend. We should put it online. Uh, maybe we'll have a link to it. Talking about how to bring the whole clean energy supply chain back to North American and U.S. shores. And I think that's what we need to do if we're going to feel confident about executing on achieving President Biden's goals and the U.S.'s goal is to meet 1.5 degrees centigrade climate cap, temperature cap by 2050. Um, this is a serious issue. It's impacting the company that I, I helm right now, uh, or it could in the future. But I really think I'm really happy to know that there are people out there who are deciding on doing the right thing, even if it costs us a little bit of time and a little bit of capital right now. So I just wanted to get that off my chest. So happy so many of you reached out and wanted to talk about that particular article after the podcast last week. Yeah, and again, we, we talked about the trade-off too, that 
we need low cost solar to make this happen, right? And we need low cost storage to make this happen. So, you know, it's it's not it's not an easy problem to solve, right? It's not. It should have been addressed a long time ago. And what I'm talking about specifically is supply chain. Yeah. I think there's recognition now, and it really isn't just because of clean tech in this horrible situation with forced labor in China. It's really coming out of the disruptions that were caused by COVID and are being caused by COVID in China right now. Uh, We are starting to really recognize that we shot ourselves in the foot when we just in the 90s let let globalization uh, really pirate away supply chain in America. So. Yeah, I mean, there there are logical arguments for globalism, right? So the idea was that if our supply chains were tied together, we could never go to war, right? Mm-hmm. Because they build half of the stuff that's in our, our products and in our tanks and our jets and things like this, right? So the idea would be if we're uh, you know globally intertwined, there would be no war. But the problem with that was, you know, if these people and you're globally intertwined would start acting crazy then you got to put up with it, right? Or you have to cut off the globalization. So, and, and that's the situation we're in, right? Well, crap, what do we do now? We're all intertwined and our partners are acting crazy. You know, what's the correct response here, right? And again, it, it really is a happy medium because, you know, my graduate school, uh, Thunderbird, is, is all about globalization. And it's about understanding, they used to say, you know, it was started after World War II by an army general who said, you know, those who trade on different borders seldom go to war with those entities in those countries. Correct. Correct. So I totally agree with that point. And I, but I really agree with your latter point is we also don't have the ability to control the politics and the dynamics of geopolitical events in all the world all the time. Right. And right. to do so and to sacrifice our supply chain, but also to sacrifice the cost of like cost of living or the quality of life in this country by denying good middle class jobs. Is hurting our politics and is creating this great skill yeah. that we have right now. Yeah. So if you bring good paying jobs back to the shores, back to America, you're going to have, you know, an understanding and visibility associated with your supply chain. You're really going to have true ESG metrics for your supply chain because you're mm-hmm. going to see what's going on. And then thirdly, you're going to have a better quality of life for people in this country so they can buy the goods and services that they and others are producing. So it's, it's time to get smart and logical. I don't want to close our borders. I am not an isolationist by any means. I like to think of myself as an internationalist, but when it comes to clean technology, we need to be a standard bearer. And hats off to the Department of Energy for putting a supply chain document out there. And I hope their colleagues at Commerce Department and others help execute and create that roadmap through the right incentives. Yeah. Well, I also don't like the fact that when they when they shipped all these jobs and all this manufacturing overseas, you know, part of the benefit to that was avoiding environmental regulations, which <laughs> Which is not really what, what the purpose should be, right? So well, well, hopefully when we bring, you know, polluting the air there is the same as polluting the air here, yeah. right? It's the same air. So, I mean, go talk to anyone in Seoul, South Korea, who has horrible pollution now. Mm. And it's a cocktail of their coal fire generation in country mixing with, you know, um, the Gobi Desert sands that are crossing through, uh, you know, crossing over the sea. And also the pollution that's coming out of China. It's a horrible cocktail and it settles in Seoul because Seoul's in a valley. And so, you know, your neighbors pollute, you feel the effects as much as anybody. So, uh, and I don't think we have the ability as a country to tell other countries to quit polluting and quit having high carbon emissions if we ourselves are not doing what we need to be doing. 
and again, it goes back to the original conundrum at this point. People want to get solar up as fast as possible for return on their personal investment, understood, but also for the green attribute, the green aspect of it. Well, we got to yeah. do that and, and with social responsibility. Yeah, I really worry about that. Like, are we going to have the climate wars of 2050 or 2060 where, you know, the developed world has decarbonized and the developing world hasn't? And, and then climate change gets nasty and, you know, the politics turns on, hey, you have to do something to stop, you know, developing worlds from continuing to dump carbon in the atmosphere. I mean, is that, is that really how bad it has to get? It's possible. Um, but then you also have to have countries who are net exporters of, of fossil fuel products like coal, uh, like Australia, for example, start, you know, turning off the spigot, a little bit, yeah. creating, creating these low carbon or these high carbon intense countries from still burning fossil fuels. You have to create this incentive. Um, I don't know if we'll have climate wars, but we may sure have water wars. <laughs> We're already having water wars. <laughs> All right. You know, I think California may invade somebody just to get water. You never know. Just sad. But thank God, uh, here at the Pirates of Clean Tech, we don't get so serious that we've neglected <laughs> the crew. Uh, so I've got my Atlantic Google summer shandy right now uh, to kick off the summer holiday. Now I found uh, uh, Sam Adams Oktoberfest hidden in a chest somewhere up in Lake George. So that's what I'm enjoying. <laughs> What's the phrase? It's Oktoberfest somewhere, right? <laughs> Sounds good. I'll go with that. Well, uh, before since I pontificated, Lucas, you should be your stories for articles first. Uh, while you're pulling them up, I'll simply say that the views and opinions expressed by Lucas and I for the Pirates of Cleveland are solely those of our personal opinions and not any organizations we may be affiliated with. And also for any public entities that we talk about, including their public securities, we are not making any recommendation for the purchase or sale of that security. We ask you to do your homework, talk to a qualified investment representative, and make sure you're being diligent and smart in how you're using your own personal capital. Yep, and we will be mentioning publicly traded companies, so we do not uh, consider that a recommendation of any kind. All right, you're up. All right, so this is an old one that I found in my notes from months ago that I wanted to talk about, but it's still a goodie, so I'm going to bring it up. This is from March 15th, actually, from Honolulu's Civil Beat, uh, Kauai quit using oil to produce most of its electricity years ago. And now that's paying off. So if you don't know, Kauai is uh, one of the islands in Hawaii. It's one of the furthest ones to the north, uh, northwest. Very nice island. I've been there. It's very, very nice. They have this beautiful uh, canyon they call the Grand Canyon of Hawaii. Um, oh, it looks like this right here. So in 2008, they were 8% renewables. And it was all plantation era hydroelectric plants, which is kind of ironic. And now uh, they went on a huge, huge renewable push. They wanted to be 100% renewable, I think by 2030. Um, and they've made a lot, a lot of progress. They're currently 70% renewables. So that's in 12, 12, no, 14 years. Went from 8% to 70%. So you can't tell me it can't be done um, because it can be done in their proof. They're leading the Hawaiian Islands. Next is um, 60% in the Big Island and 50% in Maui for renewables. And now they're super happy because they're enduring this oil shock and fuel shock. And their customers are not getting an increase in their electricity bills. They're just cruising right through it. 
So I think they mentioned in here, it's some tiny percentage they expect to, uh, their bills to increase like 8% or something. Um, and so they're very happy there. They couldn't be more excited. They're pushing, uh, yeah, see prices were only about 5% higher in Kauai um, than they were on Oahu. So they're pushing to get that final 30% done as soon as they can. Here's a neat little graphic. Here, here's that uh, Grand Canyon of Hawaii that I talked about the run thread up here. And the whole area is just fantastic for uh, hydro because it rains like crazy here. And so there's, they have all these reservoirs in here. So you can see the tunnels and ditches they have. And so they're going to build hydro storage like crazy up here. It's going to be great. It's a fantastic area for, for hydro storage. I wanted to propose something up here by the state park because there are these amazing high cliffs, again, with a ton of rain. Um, you know, and, and great resources available. And so, uh, yeah, this is really cool to see. It can be done. A little bit of soapboxy. I'm going to be soapboxy today. Here you go, people. If you need an argument, you know, if you get into an argument with somebody saying it can't be done, here it is. They're currently 43% solar, which is higher than I thought anybody would ever get. 14% uh, hydro and 11% biomass. So here you go. That is... That's, I mean, this is fantastic. I saw a quote in the article. I think it, uh, they're one of the few utilities or one of the main utilities on the island can actually run at 100% renewable on most of the day. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it sounds like they need some peaker activity on occasion. But this is, and they got battery storage. We've talked ad nauseum about this. Island economy should be leading the rest of the world on deploying of clean energy. Because they have most islands, depending on where you are in the world, you have wind, you've got hydro, you've got solar, you've got biomass, even. You've mm -hmm. And uh, really, hats off to Kauai. And I think when I remember early into the Ukraine invade, uh, invasion by Russia, we talked about Hawaii being the most exposed to Russian fossil fuel because they do import from Russia. Mm -hmm. And so here's Kauai, one of the few islands and places in the United States that's ahead of the curve. Um, so this is a great article. I'm really glad you brought it up, uh, even though you know it's a little bit dated, but not that dated. This is the type of example we need these days. Great, op great optimism. Yeah. So this is great to see. I think this image is great. I, that's the kind of place I want a vacation, right? Podcast, Lucas. You got to describe the image. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, listeners. Uh, they they have an image of a giant solar farm on Kauai Island, which doesn't offend me at all. I think it's beautiful. I don't think it's an eyesore. Um, and again, I've been there. There's some great surfing there. There's the monk seals that are finally recovering. Um, and just the nature there is just uh, unbelievable. So don't, don't skip it when you go to Hawaii. This, is a, this picture is actually right leading from next week, one of my articles about uh, something, I think they call it AgriPV, where you can actually have solar on farms and that land underneath that can still be used for ag. Okay. So, because, you know, obviously I've got a bias here because. Uh, I'm helming a company that works on vertical solar on building, building integrated photovoltaics. Mm -hmm. but at the same time, that's a lot of land to be used on an island too. So yeah. it, it's all about trade-off, but hats off to Kauai. Yeah. Okay, here we go. I'm going to get back on my soapbox here. This one's from cleveland.com. First Energy Corp is looking at combining its three Ohio utilities. This is from May 17th. So... You may think this is a nothing burger of an article <sighs> until you read the details and you find out they're doing it to try to get around limits 
on profit making at electric utilities. So collective groan. I mean, this is this is just more ridiculousness out of Ohio utilities after they were found bribing uh, officials to push through, you know, billions of dollars worth of um, nuclear subsidies. <clears throat> this is the kind of thing that I was taught, like, hey, don't don't f with the electric grid, right? Just don't mess with it. You you don't play games. You don't do BS. Look, they're trying to get around a threshold of 17% profits. That to me is uh, unusually high in utility. And say, I don't know why they think they have to go higher than that. You know, while, while they're spending all their time trying to figure out how to get around profit limits, who's, who's working on reliability? Who's working on investing for the future? Who's working on smart grid and dealing with the energy transition at this utility? I mean, what kind of message are you sending to your people? Nobody. I mean, Nobody. just... Don't do this, please. Come on. So can, can I get on the soapbox with you? Yeah. <laughs> All right. So first off, for our listeners, Lucas picked this article on his own. I know it. <laughs> I am from Ohio, and I am tired of the embarrassment of Ohio utilities in the clean tech revolution. Ohio is the third wet worst state in the United States on green energy. So 2.7% of its power is coming from green resources. I'm happy to say, I think that's from the four wind turbines around my alma mater, Bowling Green, and that's it. <laughs> they have been blocking clean energy investment and protecting old investment for a long time. First Energy does have some nuclear in Ohio. We are generally a supporter of nuclear, so don't get us wrong. But First Energy has to start playing grown-up and have to start being responsible. And it's getting tiring of the way they keep playing games at the expense of Ohio's future. Let me just say that straight out. We all know that they were caught in the cookie jar bribing state officials. And I still don't think the punishment's been severe enough, in my opinion. And I have to give a personal shout out to my friends in my hometown of Youngstown, Ohio, who rallied together and stopped First Energy and from putting a high-powered high line to crisscross a brand new park in downtown Youngstown for <laughs> a brownfield property that was going to cut the greenness of this park in half just so they can save a little bit of money instead of running it around the downtown area. Uh, they were going to the, the Ohio Siting Board, and the Ohio Siting Board listened to the people of the outside. So this is just, we have to stop this old way of thinking. There are so many other utilities in America that are listening to their constituents and putting up clean energy. The population of this country wants clean energy. The, the climate change is for real, and they know we have the capability of stopping. Nice job, Bruce. Uh, I agree. Okay, I think I'm done. I'm, I'm like exhausted. Okay, so we could talk about some actual clean tech now, can, can we? Yes, please. Uh, here, this one's from pvbuzz.com, industry update. Enron researchers create a solar cell with record 39.5% efficiency, the highest of any type. This is from my friend Derek Leela, uh, published on May 19. I love, love, love these articles. I track solar performance every year and check to see where it's at, check to see how we're doing. This is one of those uh, three layer cells. So if you think about it, each layer, the cell is tuned to like a different color in the light. So, you know, why just have it tuned to one color? You can tune it to three colors and then you grab three times as much uh, energy out of the, the sunlight. So that's essentially where they're getting a lot of this uh, performance from these triple junction solar cells. Uh, 90, uh, 39 and a half percent terrestrial um, performance. 
and actually 34.2 in space if you put it on a, a satellite. You know, feel free to, to click the link and read more if you want to know more. Again, this is uh, funded by, this is done at NREL in Golden, Colorado. So it's funded by the US DOE. So thanks again, DOE and NREL for, for pushing the energy transition forward. Uh, yeah, I mean, just all good news. NREL is one of these organizations, institutions, the average American does not know by name. But 20 years from now, they're going to know what NREL's contribution to humankind has been. They really always push the envelope forward on new energy technologies, more efficiency, uh, and this is a perfect example. So great story. Uh, thank you, NREL. Thank you, Department of Energy, for everything you guys have been doing. All right, let's hit mine. Um, I think mine's a combination of some optimism and a little clean tech, so that's always good. All right. Uh, this is something that should not be surprising to anybody right now, but I wanted to give a shout out. This is May 16th, USA Today, Jamie Deerwester. Great name, Deer Western. Right? Yeah. Registrations for electric vehicles soar, signaling increasing mainstream acceptance. I mean, this is where if you want to just ring the bells of happiness, um, it's really, you know, really upsetting to know that this gas uh, price hike conundrum we're all living through right now is happening while there's a supply chain issue on vehicle manufacturing of all kinds. And also, you know, scaling up of lithium-ion batteries and, and the impact on not having as many EVs at dealer lots. But it's just great. Registrations for new EVs soared 60% in the first three months of 2022, even though new car registrations actually were down. <laughs> Isn't that incredible? EVs count. This is the right 4.6% of all passenger vehicles sold in the US. I think just two years ago it was 2%, right? Yeah. So this is incredible, folks. And I mean, the numbers are picking up everywhere. Obviously, you've got these, you know, you've got the whole gambit. You've got Hyundai, Kia coming up with these great affordable EVs, General Motors with the Bolt, uh, you know, successor to the Bolt, which I still miss. Ford went sexy with the Mustang Lockheed. Now the F-150 Lightning pickup trucks got order book like you wouldn't believe. Yeah. Hummer, you know, General Motors just resurrected the Hummer brand. Not in love with that vehicle for a couple of reasons. We'll talk about that. But the OEMs have understood the need to put these uh, vehicles out there. So I think this is just really good news. I would take a couple steps back, though, from the enthusiasm and try to be a little bit more practical. There's some other articles out there talking about used car prices are starting to stabilize, if not drop. Uh, the average car in the United States right now is on the road 12.2 years, uh, or I should say the average age of a car on the road is 12.2 years. People are holding off from purchasing vehicles huh. because price increases. So what that tells me is going back to our original theme, which is, Folks, if you go out there, there's a lot of hybrids, a lot of plug-in hybrids, and a lot of battery electric used vehicles that are going to be at market that are going to be reasonable in price, hopefully a little bit sooner than later. Now, the prices may not come down as fast as other used cars, given gas prices surging right now, but there's going to be value out there if you look for it. So I recommend anyone who's out there looking for a new vehicle or a used vehicle, look for you know hybrids, look for battery electric, look for plug-in. All of those are contributing to addressing climate change in their own way. So this is great news. Yeah, I mean, they do. <laughs> they do address an issue of the charging infrastructure keeping up. And I actually have had this issue. Uh, you know, my first major trip with the EV this year and all of the free fast chargers were taken. So, yeah, it's starting to become an issue. One guy drove up in one of these. 
He said he literally picked it up that day. He doesn't even know how to plug it in yet. That's a Porsche Taycan for our podcast. <laughs> yeah, it was beautiful, beautiful vehicle. Um, my neighbor has one of these Volkswagen ID4s. So these are these are not showroom, you know, car show models. These are cars you can go out and buy right now if you want. All of these. So and you're showing a photo of my favorite new one, the, the Kia EV6, which I think is cool. Oh, yeah. Um, no, next other photo. Yeah. But let me let me say this. So the one thing as a car guy and I feel for Mark Royce, uh, president of North America of General Motors, who listens to me ranting at him at LinkedIn. <laughs> it's time, though, for car people like ourselves, especially Generation X, I'd like to see a little bit more soul in these cars. Yeah. You know, a lot of them are, are efficient and practical, which is great. But except for the Porsche Taycan and one or two others, I don't think EVs convey that sense of soul just quite yet. And I think we need to solve that. I'm looking forward to the Fisker Ronin, uh, a four-door convertible, that Henrik Fisker is ready to put out. I think it's going to be 200,000, of course. But for me, let's let's make sure that like cars have that sense of design flair that really make loving of the automobile so great because uh, a lot of people in our listening audience are not as so pro-automobile than public transportation, which we love. But I also think automobiles need to have their soul. So keep it, keep it yeah. up, but let's keep going. I want to see this Mercedes-Benz. I mean, but I would point out too, I really think designers haven't gotten over the no grill thing. Either designers or car buyers haven't gotten over the because they have this faux grill on here. So I think there's a lot more design innovation that can come about. Maybe, maybe it's just going to take time for the consumer to get used to it. But yeah, you don't need a grill on the front of the car anymore. So you can do all sorts of interesting designs on the front of the car now that you couldn't do before. So Right now, they're just putting a faux grill in there. So. Yeah, I'm kind of okay with the faux grill. I think because of uh, the throwback look and feel. Of it. You well, know, right. Just my, I was just talking with my PT today about uh, the Ford Mustang Mach-E, which I think is one of the most beautiful exterior designs of an EV. But then the inside looks like a Delta Airlines kiosk. Like, <laughs> and I, what I told him was, I sit, I sit behind a computer all day. I don't want to drive home sitting behind a computer console. <laughs> and it sounds like Mustang, which conveys heritage. Ford could have done a better job of putting heritage in its interior. So, yeah. you know, just it doesn't have to be Star Trek, Jetsons, futuristic everywhere. Put a little heritage in with it and let it go. Well, that because that's the way Tesla went, and everybody's following Tesla. So it's time for the Italians to step up on the design aspect, right? Well, there you go. Everyone follows the Italians, everyone follows BMW. So. I mean, look at the Lucid. I mean, this is beautiful. See, they, they're getting it. You don't need a grill. You can design it. Yeah. And I've seen some pole stars, and I think they're gorgeous. Yeah. I'm, look, I think it's individual in the car. So <laughs> I'll leave it because we can go on forever about this. So. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Green Biz. Um, this is a strange story, a little bit. Sarah Golden, May 19th, 2022. What's hot in corporate renewable energy procurement? Um, you know, what I liked about this one is at first when I saw it, I thought this was really about supply chain, but it's not. It's really talking about who's buying energy and why are they buying energy and what kind of accountability do they have? Are they presenting to their stakeholders about the fact that they're actually purchasing green energy? And so this gave just a lot of interesting stats and figures showing that customers like Amazon, like Google, like uh, you know, a few others they named have stakeholders, both shareholders and employees, especially employees, that want to have a sense of satisfaction that they're working in a company doing great things 
the better society. And ESG and sustainability is a big factor in that. So there has to be accountability about where they're purchasing their energy. And so they're showing that energy by contracted capacity in gigawatts is actually getting smaller. And that's because it's almost like more like micro purchasing. I think, Lucas, I'd like your input on this, but I just thought the fact that companies are kind of taking it in the reins for themselves to be purchasing green energy and is showing it. And as a result of that, you're not having this just mega offloads by utilities, but you're actually having customers dictating what type of energy they want. And I think, again, that's real tangible proof that ESG has a little component of greenwashing, but largely that greenwashing translates into actual real green generation in various ways. And this is proof positive. So interesting, quirky story, but I really like it. Oh, I think this number is just year to date because we're still in 2022. So it is, I'm sorry, but yeah. So it's growing every year and it's going to grow this year because we're not even halfway through and they're at six already. So it'll be 12, 13. Um, yeah, it's, it's so much easier to drive the energy transition if it's being demanded by the customer, right? Because businesses have to follow the customer. You're not in business anymore. It's so much easier than having the government come down and say, you must do this or we're going to fine you, which never goes over well. But if the customer is like, hey, I'm not going to buy from you unless you clean and green you know, the power supply, then that's so much easier. And every businessman on the planet will understand that language. So, yeah, this is some great numbers. It's good to see uh, percentage of annual contracted capacity. This is great to see solar coming up, wind. We really need battery storage to come up, so I'd like to see this number accelerate a lot more. But we got to, you know, we got to get costs down and supply up. So, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Well, it's in process, but it's probably going to take longer than we wanted to because of, uh, you know, uh, rare earth materials. But that's a very good segue to my next article, my last article. Okay. Okay, Inside Climate News, May 19th again, Dan uh, Gerino. Inside Clean Energy, flow batteries could be a big part of our energy store's future. So what is a flow battery? Uh, I still don't know myself, but after reading this article, I feel a little bit better. So obviously, everybody talks about the rare earth minerals in lithium-ion batteries. That's causing supply chain hangups. That's also causing national security issues here in the United States because we're sourcing this from some countries that may not be friends and family. To ramp up energy storage, which is going to require massive storage capacity, you need to be out of the box and thinking. And flow batteries really have this capability because they're scalable, they're larger, they're not something you put in a car at this time. So flow batteries seem to be a great solution, and particularly because they don't use rare earth minerals. But uh, there's a great diagram that Lucas had uh, just up here on the screen that talks about how it works. And effectively, the materials that are in uh uh, the nadium, I think, is the one that's the most predominant in this particular article. And that is something that the energy is stored in a liquefied state. And so in this diagram, you'll see positive and negative electrode tanks on the outside of the actual membrane cell itself. And there's an inverter that's tied to the battery that kind of regulates the uh, uh, material, the transferring of the electrolytes between the different, uh, I don't know what that, that area is between the membranes or outside the membrane. But that's the area in which the charging takes place. And so this is something that is rather efficient. It works at scale. It doesn't use rare earth minerals and could be a great energy storage solution. So a lot of research is going into this. Again, this is this uh, diagram is actually cited by NREL. So uh, is created by NREL. So you have a lot going on. I thought flow batteries are something we should be looking to at more and more because we have to get storage up in order to get 
solar and uh, wind being deployed more efficiently in this country. Yeah, so yeah, I'm familiar with flow batteries. Uh, here, there's, there's a couple of companies, you can actually buy the stock if you look into it, um, that are listed even that are building these already. So if you think about a battery, the capacity of the battery is limited by how much electrolyte you pack in it. So once the chemical reaction happens and all the electrolyte is used up, you're done. You can't charge it anymore. You can't discharge it anymore or whatever. So wouldn't it be great if you just had like a pipe where you could just, you know, when all the electrolyte was used up, just pipe in some more and just keep charging or discharging, right? And so that's the idea behind a flow battery. You just put, your, put some pipes in your battery and then you pump in more electrolyte and you could just keep pumping an electrolyte and put it in a tank, you know, and, and who cares? Just keep building more and more energy storage. Um, as long as you have a big enough tank, you can store a ton of energy with this thing. Um, you know, and you make your electrodes super huge, but, you know, and then your electrode size is your limiting factor and not your electrolyte. So these are great. If you want a 10 hour battery, a 12 hour battery, you're talking flow battery, right? So effectively, there's no downtime to recharge it. The charging could be simultaneous with the output. Yeah, I mean, it's almost like you could charge some electrolyte and then store it in a tank, or you could ship it somewhere, right? I think that's stored energy. That's what they're showing here. So, yeah, I mean, you could take these tanks and walk off with it if you wanted, um, you know, obviously with a truck or whatever. But yeah, so this is really great if you want a large amount of storage with a, a battery, you know, a chemical battery type solution this is the way to do it so i'm big on these i think they're going to be huge i think long duration storage is going to be huge you know i i don't see two one two or four hour storage solutions as everything we need i think we need six eight ten hour storage solutions to get us through the night um you know and charge during the day when the sun is up so it's a plateau isn't it because the four hour battery helps us with the duck curve right so yeah you get, you, you know, where there's that several hour mismatch between peak sun and wind generation and peak customer usage, you know, which right. is like 5 to 7 p.m. most places in the U.S. So that's great. So a four-hour battery gets us to a plateau. But right. then we go to the next plateau. And that, I think, to your point, Lucas, is the 10, 12-hour system, especially when it comes to transmission, right? If most of our wind happens to be generated in the plain state, but our population is on the West Coast and the East Coast, we need to transmit that stuff with a better grid. And that stuff has to go overnight and probably go somewhere where it's not going to be used for 10 hours. Right. So, so storage is going to be a big part of it. And if we can do cost-effective flow batteries, this is a great you know, technology lead. So. Yep. I'm a big fan of flow batteries, so I don't mean to be biased or anything. <laughs> no, I mean, look, you know, these are, these are technologies we want to talk about. So, uh, I, this is a really good episode for us because, again, I think we're talking a little bit more optimistically about where things are going. You know, there's a lot of noise out there uh, that we're not moving the Biden agenda fast enough on clean energy. I think there's some accuracy for that. Uh, unfortunately, all these other macroeconomic and geopolitical events uh, and just the ugliness of American politics seem to be taking up more of our news airwaves than they should be. But in the meanwhile, you've got companies like ESS developing these slow batteries. You've got OEMs like Hyundai and General Motors and Tesla pumping out EVs and, and hybrids. So we're doing the job and we're getting it done. And then you've got little old Kauai, right? It's really showing the rest of the country that you can put a renewable grid together. So, Right, you can do it. It can be done. Great stuff. You feel better? I feel better.
I feel better and I'm only happy. <laughs> Why did Google summer shandy? <laughs> this is uh, what episode 47. So we are, uh, we're getting up the chain. We have number 50 coming up pretty soon. We're going to have to do something special for that. Yeah, we're still working on guests. Hey, eh? our guests keep, uh, they're too busy nowadays. Too busy, you know, and uh, we're going to have some more guests, but as long as we're keeping everyone informed and the feedback's been great, uh, I feel pretty good about what we're doing here. Yep. Just keep fighting the fight. And, you know, I think this week is a really interesting week because of the conversation about solar in China, the conversation about ESG that we'll probably touch on in the next episode, where, you know, people are starting to get formally called out by the authorities for not using ESG the right way. There's a lot of greenwashing out there. These are hard conversations that lead to a lot of negativity in the press. But these are the conversations that better take place now so that going forward, companies, corporates, banks, financial institutions, we're all putting the right foot forward to push a real climate change agenda. Hey, maybe we should try and get Elon on to explain to us why he got kicked out of an ESG fund. Yeah. Yeah, I think Elon's had enough airtime. <laughs> no, no hero worship uh, from this time. I like what he's doing in space. Everything else, I'm not too sure about. <laughs> okay. So if you want to continue to hear us uh, in our podcasts and our views and opinions and our, uh, our, our hard-hitting analysis and our future predicting um, discussions, feel free to search for us on your favorite podcast site. You search for Pirates of Cleantech uh, and then you hit the subscribe or the follow button and then you'll get all our podcasts when they're hot off the press and released. You can also find us on YouTube if you want to follow along the articles with us. Search for Pirates of Cleantech and then click subscribe and you can click the little uh, alarm bell and then you'll get a notification on your phone like I do uh, that our new episode is out and then you'll be the first to know. Fantastic. Please uh, sign up. You know, Tell your friends about us. Uh, you'll win a lot of points with them, I am sure. Uh, really before we hang up, I got to say a quick shout out to my friends at Lake Erie College in Painesville, Ohio who invited me to their sustainability speaker series this fall. And uh, so I will hopefully make arrangements and get on out there and talk sustainability with some eager young college students in Northeast Ohio. And we can oh. get them away from the poison that is first energy. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> <I'm not> a- <laughs> Real pirates today. Yep. Great episode. Uh, find us anywhere. Thank you for your support. And with that, I'm Eric Pliny. I am Lucas Finko. And we are the Pirates of Cleveland. Oh.